0: Alright, so hey, this last week, Christina and I, we were at her parents' house helping with uh, some things during her, her mom's third week of chemo this last week. And her uh, parents, my in-laws, they live in a suburb of Cincinnati. And the, in their home, their, this, this community, their house sits at the end of a cul-de-sac, at the end of the street. And so the, the neighborhood kids often find themselves playing basketball or or soccer by my in-law's house. And one night, Christina and I, we were, we were sitting on the front porch, eating Grater's ice cream. And if you know, you know, <laughs> all right? Raspberry ice cream with dark chocolate. It's a thing in Cincinnati. I'm not a big fan of Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky, but Grater's ice cream is good. So we were sitting there, we were eating our Grater's ice cream, and we were watching these two kids play soccer. And this this particular night we could tell very quickly uh, these two boys were brothers <laughs> it was obvious because the older one was calling all of the shots he was telling the little brother where the goal was which moved quite a bit. He was handing out yellow cards like they were candy. He was yelling about new rules that he was making up as they were playing. And Christina and I, we were sitting there, and we were laughing as the game went on, just waiting for the fight. We knew it was going to be coming. There was going to be a fight. And, well, no less than 15 minutes later, the yelling began. You see, the, the little brother had kicked the ball toward the goal, and the older brother caught the ball with his hands. Now, I don't know much about soccer, right? but I, knew, I do know that one of the, the big rules is that you can't touch the ball with your hands. And in this particular game, and they both clearly stated that there was no goalie, too. Right? We heard this. And so he, catching the ball with his hands, was against the rule. I think that's like the, the big rule of soccer. And the other one is, is that you have to run a lot, which is why I don't play <laughs> soccer. But the older brother, he called the ball with his hands, and the younger brother yelled out, you can't do that. Right? You, you can't catch the ball. And the older brother, in a genius move, if you ask me, yelled back at the little brother, well, I am the goalie. I can catch the ball with my hands. And the younger brother, in confusion, yelled back, since when? Since when? Since this moment, yelled the older brother. And then they went back and forth. You just can't change positions in the middle of the game. Well, I just did, and this is my ball. And then, that is when the cry rang out. Right? The, the, the cry of every child, can you guess what it is? Right? That's not fair! I'm telling mom, right? That's not fair, I'm telling mom. The game quickly ended as the younger brother ran crying into the house. Now, as an observer of this, I'm team older brother all the way, right? I'm team older brother all the way. It was clear from the beginning of this game, from the moment they walked down the street into the cul-de-sac that this was not a regular game of soccer. This was really a game of wits. And the younger brother did not have what it takes to play this game of wits. But I tell you this story to bring uh, to mind the last time you said those words about your life, right? It's not fair. It's not fair. Even as adults, many of us are still caught up in the struggle for what is fair. We may not say it out loud and stomp and storm to our mom, but we think things like, man, it's not fair that she got that promotion at work. It's not fair. It's not fair that he drives a nicer car or that they live in a nicer house or, or he has a better job. It's not fair that she's prettier than me or that he's thinner than me. Right? Our, our desire foundry for fairness expresses itself in other ways too. Right? we drove back from Cincinnati yesterday and we passed like all kinds of speed traps. Right? and it got me thinking, right? When when you get stopped by an officer, when you're on the side of the road. Now, now I can't speak from experience cuz I don't get pulled over. I never speed, right? So this this I do. All right. <laughs> but when you get stopped by the police for speeding or rolling through a stop sign or not wearing a seatbelt or whatever it is. After the initial anxiety of being pulled over, one of the the first thoughts is, "This isn't fair, right? Why am I being pulled over? I was just keeping up with the the flow of traffic." <laughs> and then, of course, we try to justify why this isn't fair, why we got stopped in the first place. We and we tend to talk to ourselves in this moment, right? we're pointing out the infractions of others as they're passing us, and the officers in his squad car back there writing the ticket. Oh, sure, look at that guy. What about him? He's speeding. Look, look at her weaving in and out of traffic, right? They didn't use a turn signal. I don't even think the cop used their turn (laughs) signal, right? And then even after the ticket, for the next several days, we're like hyper-villagent, aren't we? are like hyper village are not we we are watching every other driver, and we're wondering, "Uh, where are the cops, all right, we're, we're, why are all these people able to break the law and get away with it? Uh, on the other hand, we, we see someone else. They get pulled over and we're like, all right. All right Christina did that on the way, way home yesterday. That guy, man, he was speeding. You were asleep, but he was going so fast. And look, he's pulled over now. All right. It serves them right. They're getting what they deserve. Now, let's step back and peel this onion here for a moment. Right? Why is it when something like this happens to us, it's not fair? Right? It's not fair, but when the same thing happens to someone else, we call it justice. <laughs> you see, the reality is, is that that's the way we're just conditioned. And we're taught from a very early age uh, what is fair and what is not fair. We like fair. We do not like not fair. We don't like it. We're bound and we're determined as individuals to make sure that we get what is coming to us, at least the good stuff anyways. We're reluctant to settle for anything less than what we think is fair. Again, how many times have you heard your kids or some other kid say, that's not fair? We're conditioned to think like that. And if you guys are anything like me, and I think you are, all right, we're kind of in the same boat. We, we are no different when it comes to our faith in God. When it comes to us forging a lifelong reliance on God. Right? If I asked everyone in this room whether or not they want God to be fair, I could almost guarantee that uh, your answer would be, yes, of course. Of course I want God to be fair. I certainly do not want him to be anything less than fair. We want this, this journey, this adventure that we are on, where we're putting in the work, where we're forging our life on God. We want it to be smooth and problem-free. We want God to answer every prayer in the way that we want him to answer our prayers. We want God to remove all the obstructions and obstacles in our lives before we even get to them. Or at least the snap of a finger. We want to always be happy and never have anything to worry about. We don't want stress. Look, look, look at it like this. We not only want God to be fair, we expect him to be fair. We expect him to be, hey, I'm for Team Andrew. Now, I also think that if we asked everyone in this room, if we felt like God was fair, we would have a hard time saying yes. Because we expect... We, we, what we expect from God and what we get are two very different things because just like our parents and life, God's not fair. And now you're thinking, whoa, well, whoa, well, okay, Andrew, calm down, <laughs> all right? Whoa, right? He's crossing the line again, right? Saying God isn't fair, that's a step too far, right? He's the great I am. But come on, let's, let's be honest with each other here this morning, Foundry Church. Right, God is not fair. He, he's not fair in the way that he deals with us. He doesn't treat us fairly in our relationship with him. He just doesn't treat us fairly. That's just the truth. Right? No, he, he surely doesn't treat us fairly. Right? He's not fair with us at all. And I know that after we read our story today, what we're going to look at today, we will learn something about God and fairness. We're going to learn that we don't want him to be fair. <laughs> right? We definitely don't want him to be fair. So if you have your Bibles or if you uh, don't have a Bible, use the Bible that are in the seats in front of you and you can take those with you. They are free for you to have and to use, to take, to give away. But we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 33, Uh, Jeremiah chapter 33, verses one through eight. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. This is where we're going to be. Uh, Jeremiah is in the middle of the Old Testament. It's a prophetic book, a a book about Jeremiah and his message as a prophet. So use the table of contents if you need to. Jeremiah 33, verses 1 through 8. That's chapter 33. That's the big 33, and then the little 1 through 8. Now, as you're turning there, I want to serve up a little bit of context. So we've moved, in this series, well past the story of God's people right after they left Egypt. Right, that's where we've been for the last few weeks, the last couple of weeks. And in the time between that, between the Israelites leaving uh, Egypt, and what we're going to read today, a lot has happened. A lot has happened. So I'm just going to summarize it here real quick. In 1051 BC, Saul was made the first king of Israel. King Saul, you may have heard of him. Right? He was tall, they said. He was, he was muscular. He was handsome. He was a lot like me. <laughs> all right? Now, right? he was made the king of Israel because Israel, the Israelites, the people, they wanted to be cool, like all the other nations that are around them, and have a king, even though they had God. Right? They're like, oh, we want a king, too. I mean, we have the great I am. We have Jehovah Jireh, we have our God, our healer, we have all these things, but we want a king too. And so they had King Saul. And then about 40 years later, David began to rule. Now David was described as a man after God's own heart. And he stands to this day as the embodiment of a great king, even though he sinned. He messed up, but he... He sought forgiveness, restoration, repentance. He confessed to God. God made him right. He he grew from that, and he continued to lead his people uh, by forging his life on God and guiding others to do the same. And while David was king of Israel, God made a promise in 2 Samuel 7. God said that one of his own offspring, David's offspring, would sit on this throne, and that this throne of his kingdom would be established forever. All right, so God says, hey, there's going to be a new king on your throne from your lineage. And this king is going to be the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Lord. Like, he's going to last forever. His kingdom is going to be there for eternity. But it became very clear after David's death that his promise was in jeopardy. All right, David had a son named Solomon, and he became king of Israel, and he built the temple. He was a good king. But soon as Solomon's reign was over, as soon as he died the demise of a united tribes of Israel, right, the demise of it uh, ensued. Chaos and destruction, the idolatry and disobedience of this divided kingdom. There was like civil war and, and the kingdom split it threatened to bring down God's wrath on Israel in the north and Judah in the south. All right, so that's, that's where we are. The, the ten tribes of Israel were, were eventually taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And Judah, well, it, it was not doing so great either. You see, God's prophet Samuel, he, he warns the Israelites way back when the first king, King Saul, became king. He said, he said this. He said, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. All right, so the Israelites come to the desert. We've talked about that. Ah, We want a king. Okay. Samuel anoints a king. But if you still do bad things, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And there's this promise that there's supposed to be this everlasting king, this king of kings. Right? All that whining that we talked about the last few weeks was not a good look. So for centuries, the people lived with this tension. Did we see it? On one hand, they had a promise that David's kingdom, that, that through his line, through his lineage, there would be made sure forever. That there would be a king that rules all kings for all of eternity. And then on the, the other hand, they had this threat that was looming over them, that if they persisted in their disobedience to God, they and their king would be swept away. just Swept away. They would never see this come into fruition. And God put in, in place prophets that would help the Israelites, these people, to remember the promises from God. And today we're in the book of Jeremiah, a book about one such prophet. right? So, so Jeremiah's ministry uh, began during the reign of, a, of another pretty good king who starting to kind of turn things back around. His name was Josiah. Right? So King Josiah, who who was moved when he rediscovered the power that one gets when they read the word of God. He was moved by that. And so he went and he rebuilt the parts of the kingdom, a part of the temple. He began forging his life on God and guiding others in the kingdom to do the same. Just what we've been called to be and to do ourselves. Now, unfortunately, the revival and the reform that came and that occurred during Josiah's reign it ended abruptly with his untimely death. All right, so King Josiah, who started to kind of turn things around, died suddenly, and it kind of went back into decline. Spiritual decline led to rapid moral decay in the land. There was more oppression throughout the communities. Invading armies, violence, political unrest it was just the order of the day. And we pick up this story over 12 years later, during the reign of King Zedekiah. And Zedekiah was an idiot. <laughs> all right, things are not looking good. So a, a foreign king, King Nebuchadnezzar, I know this is a lot, all right, so a foreign king, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, some called the Chaldeans in your Bibles, was Ju- Judah's primary nemesis, all right? So Zedekiah, he sent two priests to Jeremiah asking this prophet to inquire to the Lord on, on the Israelites' behalf about how they would fare against the Babylonians, against the Chaldeans, And the prophet's response was not what the Israelites expected. All right, read with me the first five verses of chapter 33. It says, the, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. He was under arrest. And so the king said, Ah, I'm going to come and ask you a question. He says, thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and will tell you the great and hidden things that you have not known. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of the city and the houses of the king of Judah. And they were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword. Verse 5 says, they are coming into the fight against the Shaladines, and to fill them with the dead bodies of men whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath for I have hidden my face from the city because of their evil. Now let me me explain. Now you can almost hear the people of Israel say, wait a minute that's not fair. (laughs) Right, that's not fair. You're supposed to swoop in and save the day. That's what they were expecting God to say. Remember when we left Egypt and you brought down the waves of the Red Sea on top of the Egyptians. Uh, where is that? Can we get some of that? All right, we are your people. That's not fair. But God had other plans. Right, God was going to see and use the Shaladins to bring judgment upon his own people. Judgment. You, you see, the, the Lord invited uh, J- Judah to display the fruits of repentance and be restored. He invited them to do that, but they didn't do it. In fact, the king, the idiot, Zedekiah, had imprisoned Jeremiah in the guard's courtyard in an attempt to silence this prophet who said, Hey, repent, turn to God, do what is right, Yeah, throw that guy in prison. You've got to picture this. It's, it's kind of funny. It's comical. The Prophet of God has been locked up, and then the King has the guts to approach Jeremiah behind bars and say hey so i'm i 'm not really talking with God right now right right i don 't really really like him i don 't want to live the way that he wants me to live, but hey you are you 're talking to god you you are forging your life on god so so uh, can, is he going to come through for us or what like is he going to save us or what? Now, I, I'm surprised Jeremiah did not laugh in his face, right? He's, he's more godly than I am. Jeremiah just repeats the words of God and says, nice try, but God has other plans. He, he's turned his face from the city. There's so much evil. In fact, Jeremiah told King Zedekiah he would soon see King Nebuchadnezzar face to face because that king is going to be victorious and take you into captive, in captivity, into Babylon. So that that tension between an everlasting line of David on the throne, this, this king of kings, and captivity of being destroyed was quickly breaking and the Israelites were probably panicking. Right? They're saying things like, I know I messed up. I know for generations we've been, we've been uh, not living the right way, but can't you save us like you always do? I know I was worshiping another God, but, but I promise I won't do that anymore. Just save us, God. Now, Foundry Church, does that sound familiar? All right? All right and I, it actually reminds me. I saw my sister, uh, my sister this, this last week as well. And it reminds me they had just bought a pool in their house, uh, for their house. And they were leveling ground and putting all that stuff in. Um, I have a turtle pool. I have a little... <laughs> For my dog Barton. We don't have to level the ground for that. (laughs) But uh, you know what I'm talking about. The ones with the turtle lid. Okay. Anyways, it reminded me of the first time that my sister and I, we we had a swim lesson. and We had it together. Um, And and we were at a hotel for some reason with my mom and with my dad. And my dad decided this is the time that you're going to learn how to swim. My sister, she's like 14, 15 months older than I am. Something like that. All right. I was looking for help, but okay. <laughs> She's like 15 months older than me, and my dad's like, this is the time to swim. So he, he, he gets us to the edge of the deep end of this pool, and he just goes like this. <laughs> right? We're like little. And, and, and the first thing I do, right, is I, I step on my sister's shoulders. <laughs> right? Like I'm climbing up her and like pushing her down into the water, and I'm standing on her shoulders, trying to trying to keep my head above water. All right? And then my dad, he has this like little pole thing. He was a swim coach, so he thought this was funny. All right? he, he sticks the pole in the water, and I, I won't grab it because I won't let go of my sister and her using her head as like a buoy. All right And that's what I'm reminded of here when I read this story. it reminds me of how the Israelites have have come before God. They, they come with all these desires in their mind. A king, like all the other nations, worshiping other gods with a small g, right? little gods, whining about everything and complaining, not following the rules of God, not disciplining themselves to live a life that is worth following, but, but they want the provision of God. They want the, the rescue of God. They want Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, but they don't want to obey anything that Yahweh has asked of them. They, they won't let go of what they, they think they want, the security, right, the, the safety of a bobbing head that I can at least stand on this <laughs> and not the real rescue. And listen, church, we're no different. I'm just being honest, Right? How often have I come to the foot of God and I'm clutching whatever I want and I'm saying, uh, but I want you too, God? I pray, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Jesus, I want more of you, but I, but I clutch whatever it is. I clutch my talents, my possessions, my popularity, my own way, uh, thinking, hey, these things are just as important and I can't let them go. I want them and I want you, God. How often do we do that? Right, here, Here's the painful truth, Foundry Church. I cannot be saved by God when I am not willing to give up everything else I think will save me. I, I couldn't be saved by my dad at the edge of that pool if I wouldn't give up, just let, let my sister go. Right? Reputations and popularity, they're good when you have them, but they can be lost. Possessions, family, relationships—right, they're good, but they can be lost. Talents are good, right, when, when they are liked by the people around us. But, but people's taste—it's fickle. Our possessions are fun to have around, but they can be taken and destroyed at a moment's notice. Right, God, and forging a life on Him cannot be lost. God is not fickle. God cannot be destroyed. And so when the, the people of Israel, they come to God saying, Hey, will you save us? He only expected them to give up the things that were holding them back from their rescue. Right? And they wouldn't do it. They just wouldn't do it. So God, in his wisdom, did the thing the Israelites thought he, that, that the Israelites thought was not fair. And he was going to let them be destroyed. And I know that's a tough teaching, but here's the thing, Foundry Church. When we are not willing to give up the things that are holding us back from the saving nature of God, he will do whatever it takes. Even if we think it's not fair to get us to give those things up and to bring us back to him. Right? That is what God's discipline is. That's godly discipline. Right? Look, God's discipline... We have this. Throw this one up. Yep. God's discipline is always to bring us back to Himself. That's what God's discipline is. God's discipline is always to bring us back to Himself. Listen, Foundry Church, God invites us to call to Him, but we have to be ready for His answer. All right? Because cause, cause hear me when I say this, the discipline of God is not proof of God's disdain for us. That he doesn't like us. Right? It's proof of his love for us. God will do, listen, whatever it takes to bring us back to himself because he loves us so much. He wants so badly for us to be by his side as we walk Through this life. So sometimes we must go through the the discipline of God so that we can grow closer to Him and then experience the plans and the purpose that He has for our lives. Right? The the same thing happened to the Israelites. After they received this news that they would receive the discipline of God, well, let's let's look at what it says next. Verse 6. I'm just going to read it real quick there in chapter 33. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. He goes from destruction, hard lessons being taught, to of an abundance of security and prosperity. So yes, God was going to let them be destroyed or taken into captivity to lose this battle by the the Babylonians, by the Chaldeans. But but then God would extend mercy to them. Mercy that would result in health, healing, and an abundance of peace and truth. Now, I I love how verse 6 starts in the NIV version. If you have the NIV version that you brought with you. It starts with this word, Nevertheless. I love this, right? God says things are going to be bad. They're going to be really, really bad because you did not do what you said you would do. You deserve this punishment you sinned. Nevertheless, I will restore you, It says. Nevertheless, I'm going to bring healing for you and your family. Nevertheless, I will bring peace. Nevertheless, I will be there. The punishment they received was fair, but nevertheless, our God is not fair. So he was going to heal his people. He was going to bring restoration. Right? God himself would bring the health and the healing and redeem the past suffering of all the people and would be replaced by this abundance of peace, it says. Abundant peace. In the ESV version that's in the chairs there, Verse 6 it's an abundance of prosperity and security. Right? An abundance. I mean what a what a wonderful phrase. You know, when you look up the, the word abundant, the first words used to explain it are this fully sufficient. Fully sufficient. How wonderful, right? In in God's unfair nature. <laughs> He was going to provide for his people fully sufficient peace, fully sufficient prosperity and security. And God doesn't stop there. Let's look at verse 6 through 8 now. I'm going to read 6 again. It says, Behold, I will bring to it Health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their guilt and all their sin against me. And I will forgive all their guilt and all their sin and rebellion against me. Guys. This is a powerful story, right? (laughs) God promises his people would return to their land and rebuild a nation as it was before the two kingdoms were divided. And he promises his people will be cleansed. They would be restored. And to be clear, both the discipline and the blessing are good news for the people of Israel. All right, I want you to lean in here, Foundry Church, and get a hold of this and grab a hold of this like a two-year-old holding a cheerio. All right? Look at this. Look at this point right here. The very best news that we can ever receive is that God is going to deal with our sin, He's going to deal with it, and He's also going to redeem us in it. I mean, that's the very best news any of us can ever hear. Right, the very best thing that we could ever happen to us is that God would discipline us and then bring about healing. Because then we're set free. Restored. Complete peace. Right? Complete security. All these things—the very best news we could ever hear—is that God has seen the temporary and the dumb things that we are clinging to, and that He's going to get rid of them. He's going to toss them aside, right? God's judgment of sin is just His mercy and kindness are abundant. His restoration of His people is fully sufficient. Foundry Church, right? Despite the rebellion of God's people, His desire was to forgive. And to restore and to build back up. The problem of our sin and rebellion is one that runs throughout the Bible. But alongside it is the testimony of God's desire to redeem and to restore. Listen, the depravity of humanity is clear. We just got to look around. But equally clear is God's solution. We want things to be just right. We do. We want life to go well. So in those moments where it doesn't seem that life, uh, that life is either just or right or fair, we should remember that God is at work. The God that we forge our life on is at work. That He is not fair, but we don't. He's not fair, but we don't want Him to be. Right. We we sometimes need discipline because we always need the saving power of God. Jump to to verse fourteen here. Just. As we finish up. Alright. It says this. After all of this takes place. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel, and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Verse 16. In those days... Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is, by, this is the name by which it will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Right, circle that, underline that. The Lord is our righteousness. I right, Catch this. By announcing that the days are coming, that Jeremiah declared that the time was near when the people would see the fulfillment of the good promise for both the house of Israel and the house of Judah, the promise that the restoration of this Davidic line, God would make things right. That this promise would be restored. Right? God would bring about a king that would reign over all kings. And he would be from the tribe of Judah and from the line of David. And he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness, Jehovah Sidkenu. Our Lord, our righteousness. Right now, I was, I've been asked Jehovah and, and um, Yahweh. Those are just pronunciations. When you read it there, you see that the Lord is all caps, right? All right, so it's just Yahweh was kind of like the way the Israelites would say God because they didn't have the the vowels. They would they would say, and we didn't have the vowels when we were translating it. All right, so it's like it's a personal thing when it's like that. When it's all caps like that, He's our Lord. Right, he's He's the great I am in our lives because we're not. Right, he, he's the God that we're forging our life on. He's Sidkenu. He's our righteousness. All this redemption would come about not just for the Israelites facing the Shaladins. He's not just the righteousness in this battle. He's their restoration. This this king, the restoring of this this line of David. This king that's going to be coming. He's the healing. He's the peace that would be for all people. This righteousness would be available to all and know this, look at this, the righteousness is not just a description, right? We know that he is a person, he's the king, right? Look again, God would cause a righteous branch to, to sprout up from David who would administer justice and righteousness in the land. Now, of course, this, this righteous branch is referred to the coming of Jesus, The the name of God that affirms his righteous character will also become the name of Jerusalem because it says this city will take on his character. Jerusalem will be restored and become what God always intended it to be, a city marked by righteousness because of a person, Jesus, who climbed a mountain in that city and went to the cross. Or the, the discipline and the redemption of God would be available to all people through this person, Jesus, who climbed this mountain. This king who laid aside his kingship for all of us. and came out of the cross, came out of the, off the cross, into the grave, came out of the grave, and is wearing a crown of thorns for all of us. The Lord is my righteousness, Jehovah, right? Jehovah, our God, Siknu, right? Jesus is available to us. The Apostle Paul summed up this whole story in Jeremiah by, by talking about his life. I'm going to have the band come up when, I, when I'm going to share this here. He spoke of his own righteous accomplishments. We know this section of scripture uh, he talks about uh, how he, he had all these accomplishments in life based on a very strict adherence to the law. You know, he's like, I was perfect. I was the man, right? He, <laughs> and then he says, look, I compared all this stuff to Jesus, to, to Jehovah, my God, my Yahweh, the God that I'm forging my life on. And he's using the word Sikhnu this righteous God, this righteous Jesus. And look what he says when I compare all this perfect stuff I did. What he says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. He says this, indeed, I count everything, all that success, whatever, I count all of that <laughs> as rubbish, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness, right, seek canoe, from God that depends on faith so in in christ he saw those accomplishments everything that he achieved as mere garbage but paul tells the philippian church that he considers all his former qualifications as garbage because the far greater worth of knowing jesus and forging his life on this king and his righteousness is so much better and he takes it a step further. He doesn't, he doesn't just know all these things are garbage. In verse 8 he says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Right? Paul is willing to give up all those things. All those things that he's holding on to. Like the Israelites were holding on to. Pride, ego is what it can kind of be summed up with. Right? He's willing to give it all up for the sake of knowing the righteousness of of Jesus. Paul knew that if he wanted Christ, he had to throw everything out in the dumpster and then light a match. Right? He he knew, like the Israelites, knew when God was going to let them and the idols that they were holding on to be destroyed. He knew that sometimes the best way to know the Lord of, uh, of our righteousness is to give up all the things that are keeping us from salvation, that are keeping us from forging our life on God, that keep us. From a total dependence on God that keep us from fully sufficient, like it said, salvation. And God is our righteousness. Father. Now how will we let that truth make a difference in our life? We confess to God that we've all forged our life on something this week other than Him Then we were like hey God, I want you got all this other stuff, I got my bags too we confess that you need Him to save you maybe for the first time maybe you haven't accepted His righteousness you can do that today you can talk to me after the service of what that means you. but has gone the way. So that's one thing we can do. We can confess but we can also trust. Listen, life is not always fair. We know that. Right? right? But but we know now and we know that we don't really want him to be. Because if he is fair, we're, we have no hope. If we really got what we deserved, well, we would be forever separated from God and never restored to healing or to hope and to so, so even when it feels like we're on the wrong side of winning and we're being beaten, like we're tossed in the ocean and just waves are pounding us, we can trust in God and his plan. God will have the final say. He is righteousness. today. his name. In the meantime, as we forge our life on him, we can trust that. We can hold on to that. And then we can also stand. The trend in our world is to believe that we can each have our own definition of righteousness. I'm not getting political here. I'm just saying that's just the trend of our world. Instead of becoming a standard to ourselves, we must stand in the righteousness of God. Stand in the name of Jesus. He is the only thing that is righteous. We stand with Him. We stand for Him. and, And is right. And we have plenty of examples of life not being fair. Thankfully, all we know that in the end is that Jehovah our God, the God that we forge our life on, God is our righteousness. And Jesus is the author.